something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Am I here with a bonus episode about Iphigenia at Aulis? This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am Liv, the woman who loves Euripides so much she just couldn't bear to mar the ending of epic Iphigenia at Aulis episodes with this epilogue that is almost certainly an invention not of Euripides. That's right. Iphigenia at Aulis, at least in some forms, has a whole additional epilogue, a whole extra chunk after what I gave you all yesterday. 
I didn't want to leave it out entirely, so it felt fitting to present it as a bonus episode. Plus, I had already reached almost 7,000 words on yesterday's episode, so, I, so it wasn't going to fit regardless. Now, smarter people than me can debate whether this episode was, you know, written by Euripides, but I'm going with probably not. As I mentioned to you all at the beginning of this series, Iphigenia Dallas was Euripides' last play written in the year of his death and not performed on stage until after he had died. Thus, bits of it are debated as to whether or not he actually wrote them. Maybe he finished the play and others added in bits and pieces, editorial style. Maybe he had entirely finished, but whoever was planning to stage it after his death didn't think he'd finished it or wanted a different ending and thus wrote this epilogue. For me, yesterday's episode is the exact right way to end it, and it feels the most like Euripides. It's very Bacchae, very Medea, to have these epic and fascinating characters make their points and walk off, leaving the audience to understand that Iphigenia walked to her sacrifice, and Agamemnon was there for it. This is how the myth goes, though the Iliad doesn't actually name Iphigenia, interestingly, and this is how Aeschylus's Agamemnon treats it, too. Clytemnestra's anger with her husband is fueled by the sacrifice of her daughter. Everything fits around the ending I gave you yesterday. But there's also this. Deus Ex Machina, the very meh, Iphigenia at Alice epilogue. Iphigenia has walked to her death, to the altar, to the sacrifice planned by her own father, a sacrifice that will bring the Greeks good wind to sail to Troy so they can bring it to the ground, capture and kill anyone in their way, and bring back Helen. It's all for Helen. Once Iphigenia has left the stage, Clytemnestra remains by herself, as the chorus too seems to have left. But before long, a messenger arrives and calls for Clytemnestra. He's breathless, eager to tell her the story that he has. Clytemnestra has been burned before, though, and she greets the messenger warily. She tells him that she is, quote, frightened out of my wits with terror that you are here to bring me another new tragedy on top of the one I have suffered. The messenger doesn't deny this. He just tells Clytemnestra that he has news about her daughter, about Iphigenia, that he has strange and marvelous things to tell her. At her prompting, the messenger begins to tell Clytemnestra his story. And boy, what a story it is. When we reached the grove of Artemis, the whole of the Greek army had gathered there, he tells her. They brought with them Iphigenia, prepared for her death. When Agamemnon saw her, he cried out and turned away, unable to look as if Agania was brought to the altar, to the place where she would soon be sacrificed for the winds of war. But she stood near her father and spoke to him, reassuring him. 
the messenger tells Clytemnestra that Iphigenia told her father that she was there for him, that she was prepared to give her whole body for Greece, that she was prepared to be sacrificed to Artemis, if that's what the gods wanted. She told Agamemnon that she hoped for his victory and that he would return home safely. Then she made her strength in the matter clear. No Greek will touch me, she announced. She would present herself for the sacrifice. She would not be held down by others. The Greeks in attendance were awed by her, by her strength and will under the circumstances, and one among them, Talthybius, called for silence in the crowds for respect for the girl. Then, the messenger explains, the prophet Calchas, who had foreseen all of this in the first place, placed a sharp knife onto a golden tray and then put a crown on the girl's head. From there, Achilles stepped up and sprinkled holy water around the altar before calling out to Artemis with a prayer. He offered her Iphigenia, the blood from a virgin, and asked that it bring them safely to Troy, where they will take the city by spear. The whole of the Greek army watched this take place, along with Agamemnon and Menelaus. Calchas stepped up once more, making his own prayer and picking up the knife. The messenger tells Clytemnestra that Calchas looked at the knife and at Iphigenia's throat before him, and chose the best place to strike. The messenger adds that he personally was very affected by this and stood with his head down. But then, he says, something incredible happened, something unbelievable. He tells Clytemnestra that everyone clearly heard the sound of the blow, the knife as it grazed Iphigenia's flesh violently, but that no one could see her anymore. The girl herself was gone. Calchas cried out in shock, as did all the Greeks, knowing they'd witnessed a divine miracle. They knew it was a miracle not only because Iphigenia was gone, but because in her place lay a hind, a deer, a magnificent one, enormous and stunningly beautiful, and the altar of Artemis was stained with the deer's blood. At this stunning sight, Calchas announced to all the Greeks, asking if, if they too had witnessed the miracle and stating that it's clear what is meant by it. Artemis prefers the sacrifice of this hind rather than the girl. She doesn't want her altar polluted by the girl's blood. Which I, I mean, duh, it's Artemis. Come on, people. Still, everyone is shook. The messenger tells Clytemnestra that Calchas went on with his pronouncements. He told the Greeks gathered that this obviously meant that Artemis had accepted what they'd given to her, that wasn't she was announcing that they would now have a fine sailing to Ilium, to Troy. He told the sailors that they should all take great confidence in this, that they had Artemis on their side for their crossing of the Aegean. The messenger tells Clytemnestra that it was Agamemnon who sent him to tell her of their daughter's fate, Evidently, Agamemnon himself didn't have the time to bring this news directly to Clytemnestra. Would think that after all his bullshit, maybe he could have told their, his wife that their daughter maybe wasn't dead himself. Then this is Agamemnon. The messenger tells Clytemnestra, quote, I was there and saw the deed and can say that your daughter has flown away to the gods. Give up your grief and your anger at your husband. The messenger leaves and Clytemnestra and the chorus speak. 
They're happy at the news. They believe it easily, but Clytemnestra is a little more wary. How can I be sure this isn't a trick to make me give up my anger and mourning? She asks. Oh, the chorus says, here comes Agamemnon to tell you the same story. How lucky. So, fine, I guess Agamemnon found the time. Good for him. Agamemnon proceeds to only have a few lines where he basically says, Hey, woman, we should be happy for Iphigenia. She's with the gods. Take the baby, translated as whelp, and go home. We're headed out to Troy. See you. It may be a while. And then he leaves. The chorus provides us with the final lines of this epilogue. Quote, Son of Atreus, go rejoicing to the Phrygian land and return rejoicing with the finest spoils from Troy. And that's it. So I think you can see why I believe that this epilogue wasn't written by Euripides, but by someone after his death. It doesn't fit with the play at all, it's blunt and forced and weird, and Agamemnon's lines don't sound like a human, let alone the previous Agamemnon. It sets up the idea that Clytemnestra maybe wouldn't be angry with Agamemnon, even though Lord knows she is in all of the rest of the sources. It takes away the power at having Iphigenia actually sacrifice there, the resonance of that, and the fact that that too is referenced in other sources. Some say it fits because it links with Euripides' other work about her, like Iphigenia among the Taurians, which takes place after this and in which she is alive. But Euripides wrote that long before this one, so I don't think he would really feel the need to force that connection. Throughout the rest of the play, the connections being made to other sources and stories for this myth are subtle and well-drawn. He's not hitting you over the head with them like this. It's just weird. I do appreciate the chorus's last line about Agamemnon bringing home the best spoils, because that kind of suggests Cassandra, which is interesting, but honestly, the entire rest of this is so blech, so not Euripides. It's forcing a deus ex machina, too, which Euripides didn't always feel the need for. A reminder, deus ex machina is gods in the machine. It's the use of gods at the ends of Greek tragedies to wrap up the situations and tie nice little bows on them. It's used often, but not always, and Euripides often found fascinating ways of playing with the trope, if not ignoring it entirely, whereas this one feels, like, so obvious in all the wrong ways. For instance, in his two big plays that I love so dearly, Bacchae doesn't have a deus ex machina unless you count the fact that the deus is in the whole play, Dionysus. Medea turns the trope on its head. Medea is the deus ex machina with her dead children in her chariot. It's just... None of it feels like Euripides for me, which is why I give it to you in this funny, tacked-on bonus episode, because that's exactly how it feels in the play. Funny and tacked-on. Still, it just adds more fascinating layers to this, doesn't it? I mean, fuck, I love this shit so much. It's just so true. It's so interesting and weird and so great. Thank you all so much. This really is so fun. I am Liv, and like I said, I love this shit. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.